This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lens Me Your Ears. My name is Karsten Knox, and I am your co-host for today with Stephen Cook. Hello. And I am a, a film writer, and I write a blog called Flaw in the Iris that you can find on halifaxbloggers.ca. And I write for localexpress.ca here in Halifax, and I'm also a general smartass on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> you are indeed. Uh, today we're talking about romantic comedies, that fallow genre uh, that, uh, you know, struggles to make a way of it in today's hard-bitten Hollywood world, and we're we're talking about it in relation to sort of a, a, I guess, a return to, to form, maybe, maybe not, from Bridget Jones and Bridget Jones' Baby. Well, welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears, the podcast that takes a look at fairly current films playing in theaters and uh, links it up with some forgotten gems from the past that oh, uh, yeah, might be I, worth looking into. I forgot to mention all that. Well, you know, that's <laughs> we've got all the time in the world, so... <laughs> <laughs> why not? Well, maybe not, an hour. Why not shake it up and, and do things a little differently this week? <laughs> and uh, this week we're taking a look. Usually we take a look at a genre or a franchise or a star or director or what have you. Um, this week we're looking at, uh, I guess, kind of a genre or a um, a mold, I guess, for uh, for for uh, romance and laughter, romantic comedies, uh, which have been around, you know, pretty much since the dawn of, of, of film. They've certainly been around in the silent days. And uh, continue to evolve over the years as uh, as uh, people get older and and start dating and and procreating and all that kind of stuff. And we've we've seen this this format and this genre go through a whole bunch of different changes over the decades. And uh, the latest entry in the romantic comedy sweepstakes is Bridget Jones' Baby, uh, return of the Rene Zellweger character based on the novels by uh, Helen Fielding. Um, and it's been a while since we've seen Bridget. Uh, of course, uh, Renee Zellweger is an American actor playing a British professional lady who uh, has uh, no luck in the romantic department. And uh, when we meet her here, she is uh, single again, um, kind of mourning past relationships and actually genuinely mourning uh, the death <laughs> Of a former beau who was played by Hugh Grant in the first two movies. Who, yeah, they totally wrote him out, you know? <laughs> and, and I got to say, the first two movies, which came out in pretty quick succession, uh, Bridget Jones' Diary and then the sequel. Yeah, they uh, were in a few years of each other. Yeah, like, like I think maybe 2001 and 2004 or something, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a three of them. It was, it was... Her, uh, Rene Zellweger, uh, Colin Firth, and Hugh Grant. And Hugh Grant was such a big part of those movies. He was, he he kind of, I mean, it may be one, it's one, certainly one of my favorite Hugh Grant performances because he plays such a jerk. It's such a, <laughs> and, he, and he's such a breath of fresh air next to Zellweger's character who basically is so awkward and uh, and Firth who is so stuffy. Uh, it's And he's hilarious. He, he brings a lot to this, to this franchise. And I got to say, one of the things about the third movie, this one, uh, Bridget Jones' Baby, is I, I really missed Grant in, in, in here. I think, I think uh, you know, they replace him with, uh, with you know, Mr. McDreamy himself. Uh, <laughs> Patrick but, Dempsey. Patrick yes. Dempsey. But I, A yank. I, and, you know, he's fine, but he's no Hugh Grant. Uh, and I got to <laughs> say that that was one of the biggest things I missed about it. Yeah, I wonder if there was a script that accounted for Hugh Grant's character 
or included him in some format because uh, you know when the film starts uh, Bridget is going to a funeral for uh, but it makes for a funny scene when you know when the the the, the church is filled with various conquests of the yes. of the, uh, the Playboy publisher and uh, and then everybody realizes that you know when they're sharing memories it's all basically the same memory because he had the same sort of limited vocabulary of of uh, come on lines and, and romantic gestures that he shared with every one of his uh, former paramours. But uh, but in the, at the start of this film, and this isn't giving anything away because it's the first few scenes, but uh, Hugh Grant's character is, is gone. He's dead. Uh, he's, he, he's missing at his, least. His, his, he's missing. His plane went down in the bush, uh, as they say <laughs> in the film. So he, he's sadly missing, but I, I, I think it's kind of neat that they mix it up a little bit. I, I can't say I'm the world's biggest Patrick Dempsey fan, but, uh, you know, he plays like a, like a billion, I guess a, they call him a billionaire, but he's, a, he's an internet mogul who's perfected the, the internet, uh, dating app, I guess. Um, you know, they make references to Tinder and other things, but, but his is, uh, uh, quant, his name, his last name is quant. So of course it's like quantum romance or yeah. something like that. The quantum factor. Yeah. He's, um, an, he's a mathematician. He's invented this algorithm that's supposed to bring people together. Yes. And it shows, uh, that, uh, she and, and, and Colin Firth's character, Mr. Darcy, uh, have about a 5% <laughs> chance of compatibility while she and Patrick Dempsey have something like a 97% yeah. chance yeah. of compatibility. And it's like, clearly what we, in the 10 years since we last visited with, with, uh, Darcy and, and, uh, Bridget, they've been on again, off again for all this time. And I guess it was very painful. They sort of make reference to it, but by the time that we find them again, uh, Darcy's married to someone else and, uh, and, you know, and it's, it just seems like really it should be over between them, but of course it's not, not. no, it's well. not. And they have <laughs> the opportunity to rekindle, but then Bridget also has a moment with this billionaire and boom, uh, she's pregnant and she's not sure who the father is. And all of this is no spoiler because it's all in the trailer and, <laughs> and, and, and the title and the title. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So, you know, it's funny. I, I think this setup actually has a lot of promise. This is, this is there is a lot of humor to be had where in this kind of situation where our, our, you know, beloved lead and, and let's face it, Bridget Jones is a character that is really well adored, uh, has finds herself in her forties in this situation. But I don't know. I just felt like instead of, I, one thing I really liked about Bridget in the previous movies is that she really felt real. Even when she was stuck in a Thai prison, she felt like a real person. <laughs> Whereas in this one, I just felt like the script was making the decisions for her. It wasn't as character driven. Yes. And, and it just, it felt very stiff and formula. And there were a few good lines. There were times when I laughed and, and it was nice to spend time with her again as a character. But overall, I just, I wondered, I, I don't want to give too much of the ending of the film away, but I also wondered whether this was the real result that we always wanted for Bridget, what happens to her in the end. She she does reach a kind of happiness, but anyway, I think I think what the film is saying with, the, with a little bit of a coda right before the end credits roll, I think the film is basically saying we've we've dropped in on her life right now and maybe it ends happily now, but it, it may not be happily ever after. Yeah, it's it's it ties up, um, you know, her, her biological clock, the desire for motherhood with the desire for matrimony. And and uh, I, I guess what's clever about the film is the way it puts those two things. Normally, those two things are kind of connected um, here. They're kind of put at odds because, of course, we don't know who the father of the baby is. Uh, might be, although they, they, a lot, you know, as the film progresses, um, they kind of point in one direction or another. Um, 
uh, unfortunately, there's always, with a lot of these comedies, there's always a contrivance of some sort to get people together or in the same place or to fall back in love after they've fallen out of love or whatever. In this case, the contrivance is that she refuses to have a DNA test. And of course, you know, because if she does, then there's no movie. She, <laughs> yeah, she knows right. who the father was. She seemed, from one moment to another, she'd be equally content to go off with uh, Patrick Dempsey or, or uh, Colin Firth. Uh, at any given point, depending on who she's with in any given scene. So, um, you know, the, 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 the film really kind of hedges its bets. Um, and that, that, so that's, that's the kind of, that's the grain of salt you got to swallow, uh, that, that she decides because of her fear of needles, I guess, yeah. she doesn't want to get a DNA test from, from Emma Thompson, who plays her obstetrician and, and yay, Emma Thompson. Yeah. I, I think big, more, big Emma, highlight. and more Emma Thompson in any movie is a good thing as far as I'm concerned. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, and I'm okay with the fact that the, that there's a little doubt to with whom she's going to end up with because I like that suspense and it's it's kind of the Sabrina model, right? It's like Audrey Hepburn, who was a classic romantic comedy star in her heyday. Uh, in Sabrina, she uh, she has two choices and both of depending on which. I mean, you kind of by I guess by the third act, you're kind of sure who she's going to wind up with, but they both have their appealing. Uh, elements and you can understand why she's attracted to both guys and they're both movie stars. So you feel like <laughs> you feel like they're both in some ways equally appealing. Uh, in this case, I think Colin Firth is a much bigger movie star than Patrick Dempsey. So I, uh, the, there's that. I, even calling Patrick Dempsey a movie actor <laughs> yeah, is, is a stretch. A bit I mean, of a stretch. I mean, I like can't buy me love as much as oh, the next wow, person, yeah, okay, but, you but you know, we're talking about rom-coms here. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I, I, I hear what you're saying there. Uh, Another problem I think uh, with with this film is that and and something that's great about romantic comedies in a general way going way back is that often the supporting cast is as much fun and a source of as much humor as the the leads. Uh, and that's certainly true for British romantic comedy since the early 90s. Many of the best ones have been written by Richard Curtis. Of course, you know. yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about Forwardings of Funeral. We're talking about uh, Notting Hill, Love Actually. This is, he's, he's the king of romantic comedies. And he was responsible for adapting the screenplay for the first two uh, Bridget Jones films, he is not on board here, and I think he's missed. And you can tell because the supporting cast, who have been reassembled, all these people in in Bridget's life, uh, aren't nearly as interesting as they were in the previous film. So, so I think that's I think that's partly due to Curtis's absence. Um, and yeah, I'm going to talk a little more about Curtis later because it's one of his early films. I think uh, deserves a uh, uh, mention. But but uh, yeah, it's it's something else that that uh, that often in these movies when the conventions and these predictable elements that surround the leads uh, are, are laid out as you go through them. Um, what is the best part of the films are often these, the support, the kooky friends yes. who, who, uh, who surround <laughs> the leads. So yeah. Yeah. Edward Everett Horton and, uh, you know, uh, Patsy Kelly and all these character actors that, uh, that seem to be in short supply here. And in fact, even, you know, she has these sort of interesting friends from, from previous films and they're kind of shuttled off to the sidelines in this film to deal with these, this kind of workplace uh, scenario, which is kind of the least interesting part of the film. Uh, even though it's supposed to make, make it seem modern where, where, uh, Bridget works at, uh, on a TV news show and, and they brought in the, these young, you know, hipsters, hipster producers with the, the top knots and the, the <laughs> damn hipsters. and the wax mustaches. And, <laughs> and, you know, so the, there's this one kind of, you know, evil, uh, 
evil woman producer lady who, who come the consultant or whatever she is to comes in to kind of you know turn turn their hard news show into clickbait um who's very played very cartoonishly with a broad you know working class accent and you know extreme art school uh makeup and hairdo and she's got this kind of trio of hipster dude guys who don't have any dialogue at no, all. They kind no. of follow her around with their tablets. And I guess that's supposed to be funny. They yeah, have, they've they got no personality. They just kind of lurk in the background and snigger at uh, Bridget's, uh, you know, failings. And, that's but, right. And but, her, her, but don't her actually register. Her kind of uh, frumpiness, which is a, a large portion of the humor in these movies. And yeah, I think there is a l- real opportunity for humor in this, in this situation. If they really decided to mine it, to give these characters actual, agency but they just sort of float around in the background and make her life difficult and it becomes a subplot rather than a, a main part of the story which i felt like it was a really miss a missed opportunity yeah they're like they're like the ghosts in pac-man who chase her around while she's <laughs> yeah. trying to jump on yeah so on i plot think pills i think overall i i wasn't that big a fan of as much as i am a big fan of rom- romantic comedies in a general way i wasn't that big a fan of the return of bridget and you know we were talking before we went on air about what what's the problem with romantic comedies there are so few of them made these days you can find them and occasionally there there are good ones and i'm going to mention a few a little bit later but there are so few of them and and you know we can point fingers at the at the you know the Catherine Hagels and the the Kate Hudsons and the Matthew McConaughey's <laughs> those movies we they made them quite a bit for a while but I think people just got tired of how bad they were and the formulas were really yes. atrocious even Gary Marshall you know rest in peace Gary who has a great uh, career behind him made a bunch of bad romantic comedies in the last few years and I think people just got tired of them I I remember the moment maybe. Three years ago where I was, it was February and I was waiting for the big romantic comedy to show up right before Valentine's Day because that's when they get released and it didn't arrive. Instead, it was like a remake of of Endless Love or something. And I was like, Ugh. this is what we, you're, we're getting now? This this kind of, this dreck? And, I mean, I almost prefer a formula romantic comedy to these other these other supposed date night movies. I mean, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey and all. I mean, just forget it. Like, bring <laughs> bring back. There's There's got to be better stuff than this. So anyway, all of which to say is that I still have a lot of hope for the genre and it's and I'm going to suggest a few good ones from recent years and uh, and some good ones from like maybe 25 years back. Uh, but, uh, but Stephen, you know a lot more, or have you seen more of the classic genres? I know a few of them. I've certainly seen, you know, the Philadelphia story. Sure. I've, I've seen a bunch of the Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy films, like bringing up, uh, sorry, Adam's Rib and Woman of the Year. Uh, I'm also a fan of the Thin Man movies, which which uh, basically made marriage seem like a wonderful idea. Maybe the first and only time in Hollywood that <laughs> marriage has has had genuine romance. It was those were great movies. But but uh, yeah, tell me tell me your thoughts on on some some great romantic comedies of the past. Well, I, I think that uh, those classic romantic comedies and and uh, maybe we'll go a little more de- in depth in the next segment. But they. Um, they, they, you know, they had a certain speed to them, um, a certain lightness, a deftness. I mean, they're obviously very well written and, and edited within an inch of their life. There's no wasted fat on those. And I, I find that I find that a lot now when I go to the films, movies. That there, there's a lot of dead air, a lot of dead space in 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 these films. That, that, that there's just scenes that hang there, and and they're, they're not kind of 
made with that kind of brutal attention to pacing and and uh, an arc and that kind of thing. I mean, Bridget Jones' baby is over two hours. It's 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 actually like two hours and two minutes or something like that. And uh, you know, I, I hate to like cop out when and say like, oh, it felt long because a lot of movies feel long because. Uh, you know, you don't have the distraction of, you know, if you're watching in theater and you know the distraction of your phone or, or anything else, you're, you're focused on that screen and you really notice the dead spots. Um, and, uh, and for some reason, the Bridget Jones felt really long to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. uh, you know, comedy, I mean, even any, no comedy should really be over an hour and 40 minutes, an hour, 50 minutes tops. Um, you know, Judd Apatow is frequently guilty of, of breaking that rule. I yeah. think of funny people, it was almost two and a half hours yeah, or way more. too long um and it, and because when his films are at their best and they're really sharp yeah. they really benefit from that fast clip and also i gotta say a shout out to woody allen uh one of the great purveyors of romantic comedies in our era in the last 30 or 40 years uh you know he continually comes back to the form uh in his movies almost always uh 90 minutes 100 minutes tops yeah and, uh, but, uh, you know, speaking and speaking of Apatow, I think that films like, you know, knocked up and this is 40 and that kind of thing have kind of maybe replaced the mainstream romantic comedy over yeah. time. The, the, yeah. I mean, they're, they are technically relationship comedies more, maybe more so than romantic comedies. Uh, and it's, there's kind of like a matureness and an immaturity. About them well, at the same they're, time. they're more about men than they are about women. That is true. Yes. Yeah. The, the women, the, the female roles are not as strong in those films and, and, uh, you know, but it feels like those kind of films have kind of supplanted the traditional, you know, McConaughey Hudson. Yeah. <laughs> to, just yeah, to, just to use a uh, straight up uh, description. But, um, you know, I, I, I think, I think Bridget Jones could have done with a bit of, of lightness and deftness and pacing and, um, you know, they, they go in and out of her narration, you know, and that, that could have been used to actually like tighten it up and, and maybe cut some of the chaff <laughs> from it. And, and, uh, you know, that's, that's something you don't see in say like a, his girl Friday, for example, uh, or, you know, uh, any of those kind of Cary Grant romantic comedies of the thirties and forties. So, uh, it, it'd be nice to see someone go back to those kind of things. As, as far as modern romantic comedies go, I think there is hope in the more sort of indie film world for, um, for something a little more progressive, uh, I think of, uh, I've just got a few films up in front of me, like Nick and Nora's infinite playlist. Oh yeah. It's um, terrific. Yeah. C- Celeste and Jesse forever was a film I quite liked, although it's about a couple coming apart, but it's also got Rashida Jones and Andy Samberg as the stars and they're very appealing. So I, I, I do have hope that, you know, that as these actors mature, that we'll see more of them in these kind of films that, uh, can be funny and, but also very modern about relationships and about the way people relate to each other. I think, I think you're right. I think, uh, maybe the romantic comedy needs to step away a little bit from the comedy and allow for a little more bittersweet. I think part of the problem is that people are a little more realistic about relationships now and, and maybe don't always believe in happily ever after. I think about, um, 500 days of summer is another romantic comedy. It's in the mold, but really it's, it starts from the get go by saying that this is this is not a, a story about a successful relationship, you know, and it jumps in time. The structure is fascinating. I mean, uh, yeah, this is this is really good stuff, and it still is recognizably a, a comedy and a romantic one about a relationship, but it has a lot of pain in there too. Yeah, I definitely think that's the way things are probably going to be heading, and that's probably a good thing. <laughs> All right, Stephen, 
Give me your your list of favorite classic romantic comedies. Favorite class? Well, uh, I automatically think of uh, I mentioned His Girl Friday off the top of my head, and it it's uh, it's definitely a romantic comedy. It's it's interesting in that it's a remake of the front page, where the two main roles were actually male, and then uh, for the remake because there was a, a, an early talky sound version of the front page. And then for the remake, Howard Hawks decided, well, let's flip it around. Let's make one of the reporters. It's about a relationship between an editor and a reporter and, and they're covering, um, you know, a, 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 an execution of a, of a, of a criminal. Um, and, uh, well, let's make the reporter female and make it that the editor and the reporter, of course, have a former or formerly married. And she's about to get married to a new guy who's, uh, not, in the same league as her, her old uh, uh, paramour slash boss, and uh, and so we got Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell, and as uh, as the editor and reporter, and as the poor hapless fiance sap, we have Ralph Bellamy, um, who in the film itself actually gets compared to Ralph Bellamy, which is one of the great kind of fourth wall breaking moments in in film comedy, where you know that guy looks a little like Ralph Bellamy. And, <laughs> And that's how very meta for that's very for meta, especially, you know, for that time. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and then, uh, actually another joke in that film is that, uh, they refer to, uh, somebody's on the phone and I think they use the name Archibald Leach, which of course is Cary Grant's, Grant's real name, name. Yeah, yeah, uh, sure. gets, gets thrown in there. And it, it's in a way it's a, kind of the first postmodern comedy, but it's, it's that, uh, battle of the sexes between Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell trying to one up each other, um, while they're trying to find this escaped, uh, guy who's supposed to be heading to the gallows. Um, and, uh, just the, the rapid fire give and take between them. Um, you know, Howard Hawks is just propelling them to, to, say the dialogue faster and faster and faster. And, uh, and it just has so much life and so much gusto. It's, it's, it's hard to top. And I don't think it really has been top there. There, there have been attempts to, I think, um, was it broadcast? No, not broadcast news. There, there was a TV version of it. Okay. Um, and, and now I not, I keep thinking mixed signals. No, that's not what it was called, but it was, uh, uh, with, uh, oh gosh, I think with Burt Reynolds and Kathleen, Turner, maybe? Oh, yes, there was no, one. There was one, not yeah. Not broadcast news, but it no, was... No, but I, yeah, in the 80s, there was one. Cross channels or something like yeah, that. Yeah, switching channels, maybe. That's it, there we go. Yeah, I knew yeah. we'd get there eventually. <laughs> um, uh, but, I mean, nothing really beats the charm of, of His Girl Friday. And, no. uh, you know, just... And there's that adult knowingness there. Of course, you know, it's it's at a time when they can only, they can only go so far in terms of dialogue um, about what they could say about sex and relationships and that kind of thing. But But you know, with good writing, you can get around just about anything. And, and so there are, you know, you do get the feeling that this was a real relationship, that these two had a physical relationship and, and that uh, those vestiges are still there, which of course enables the, the, uh, the eventual denouement to take place. Um, uh, you mentioned the Thin Man movies. Uh, of course, the first one is the best of the bunch because yeah. it took place before the production code. Um, Whereas the remainder of the series takes place after 1934 when they had to kind of tone down the drinking, the drinking and the sexual overtones and that kind of thing. And, uh, even a gag where he's taking the dog out for a walk and stopping at every tree, you know, you can get away with that kind of thing. You know, the the kind of bathroom humor was curtailed. (laughs) It's one of my favorite gags. I wasn't, I didn't even catch that until like the second or third time I'd seen the film where he's, you don't even see the dog because it's all shot above the waist, but you notice that he's stopping at every tree. Right. Um, you know, the dog is marking, Asta Asta is marking his territory. Um, (laughs) 
but uh, you know, the, there's a real feeling of love and, and warmth there. And, uh, you know, it's William Powell and Myrna Loy. They were friends in real life. Uh, you know, they were never, people thought they were in an actual relationship. They never were, but they were such good friends. And, and there were in other films, there's lots of other screwball comedies that they're in. Like, um, I think wife versus secretary is one of them. And, uh, uh, oh, love crazy. I think there's, I think they made as many films outside of the thin man series as they did okay. with, within it. And they're all, they're all worth seeing cause they just have that chemistry. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think ultimately that's probably the one word that, that, uh, these films live or die on is the chemistry of their leads. And, uh, you know, the, that's why the good ones survive, yes. you know, um, you know, how can, how can you not fall in love with a Cary Grant or, yeah. or, or a James Stewart or, or, you know, or the, the ever debonair William Powell, but, 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 uh, the Nick and Nora Charles and the Thin Man, I mean, I was based on the novels by Dashiell, how the novel, there's only the one of them by Dashiell Hammett. He created the characters, but they really do come to life in a, in a completely unique way in the films. Um, and, uh, the, the give and take between them and just the, the, the amount of leeway they're able to give each other before they reel each other back in from scene to scene is, is just remarkable. Um, and you don't really get that a whole lot, at least not in films. Um, you know, the, the, the cost and the machinations of movie making means it's hard to kind of maintain a franchise like that these days. I mean, yeah. you're more likely to see it on, on cable TV yeah, or, yeah, sure. or well, they, Netflix or they that sort of thing. They tried to do it with like that kind of chemistry with like Moonlighting, which is a yeah. show, you know, with um, Sybil Shepard and uh, Bruce Willis. And, but it's so hard to recreate. And, and the structure of those movies, you just, they just don't make them like that in terms of the way the script is written. You know, the, the movies now, the characters need to discover something about themselves. They need to have an arc, you know, even in a romantic comedy, they need to have this almost this journey together and, and bring the characters together. I don't know what a screenwriter would do now if he started or she started with, with the, the characters, uh, you know, as a couple happy together at the beginning and at the end, you need to fill that time yeah. either with, with humor, with gags, with, with plot, but uh, the mystery, I guess, becomes what happens in these movies. Uh, you know, the, the, the couple wind up being detectives and trying to solve a mystery. And that becomes the, the journey that the, the audience has taken on and boy, are, are they entertaining? Uh, I guess they made six of them. Uh, right through the the war, yeah, uh, and and here's a little bit of trivia. I don't know, and and I have so few opportunities to try to stump <laughs> you, Stephen. Do you know who played their son in the last in the last a child actor played their son in the in the final? I think maybe couple of of Thin Man movies went on to be an actual name in Hollywood. I'm going to go on a limb and say Dean Stockwell. Yes. Okay. Yes, it was. Damn you. <laughs> oh, I thought I would have you there. It was Dean Stockwell. <laughs> um, I just, well, I had a vision. He had the blonde curly hair when he was a little kid. And I just had that vision of, of him in those movies. Um, the, uh, you know, and the other thing about those, those classic romantic comedies, I mean, you know, I don't really expect anybody to go out and try and recreate those kind of movies. But, but the thing I do love about them is generally they had a pretty good premise outside of just the relationship mm -hmm. that his girl Friday has this whole thing with the escaped convict and, and the, all the other uh, reporters in the press room. And, you know, again, as you mentioned, the great character actors that the supporting cast, um, you know, Nick and Nora usually had a mystery to solve amidst everything else. And, uh, I, I find uh, the ones where it's just the pursuit of a relationship becomes the main through line of a film can, can often, 
It's like, well, what else is going yeah. on in their life? You know, yeah, because they need to come. They that's need never to, the only thing that happens in somebody's life. Yeah, and they need to come up with some obstacle to keep them apart for long enough yeah. to run of the film until they get together. You're right. That's those are the least interesting of romantic comedies, in for the most part. And I'm thinking about my favorite, probably from there. I mentioned it before, the Philadelphia Story. It's really about class. It's about you know this this wealthy woman in this upper class Philadelphia families getting married and uh, a reporter and the photographer comes in to interview her and it turns out that her ex-husband is still lurking around and because only because it's Cary Grant is it not creepy <laughs> yes <laughs> and he the new lives guy next door yeah and the new guy is uh, is very dull and then she proceeds to get drunk and uh, and hang around the pool with the reporter and they kind of have like this weird emotional connection uh, over this evening and and then and then the morning arrives and oh who knows what's going to happen now like it it is uh, it's it's wonderful uh, but there's so much stuff going on and there's so many interesting characters her parents her little sister uh, there's all this stuff happening and they each have their own moments it's not just the whole movie isn't doesn't have to be carried by the lead one or two, two or three characters. It, it's funny you mentioned that the class thing because that comes into play in um, another Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant movie, A Holiday, which I think is directed by George Cooker. I'm not 100% sure, but but um, she's kind of like the black sheep Let me look sis, sister in this family. And, uh, and, and, and Cary Grant is kind of a guy who's not from the same social strata and there's certain obstacles <laughs> within the family to overcome. You do have Edward Everett Horton as kind of the the wacky friend, um, George it, Cooker. You're right. Oh, okay. Well, it, and it's a it's a marvelous film. It, and uh, you know, Hepburn. Uh, you know, when Hepburn was firing on all cylinders and had a male lead that she was simpatico with, it's she's pretty hard to top. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, pretty amazing. There are some films where you can tell her heart's not exactly in it, uh, and and it's you know to the point where she got labeled box office poison at one point in her career. And in fact, the Philadelphia Story was the film that kind of got her career back on track. Um, you know, uh, and uh, obviously she and Cary Grant had an enduring friendship and that showed on the screen. And uh, But, uh, you know, as we were talking uh, off mic, uh, the film she did with Spencer Tracy, not all of them comedies, incidentally, but but most of them were, um, you know, generally stand, you know, head and shoulders above most of the romantic right. comedies of the period as being some of the greatest. Um, and... You know, I don't know that uh, many people at the time knew that they had a relationship. That's something that I think that came, came, became more well known after uh, Spencer Tracy passed away because, right. of course, he was, they were not married. No. Um, and he was people, very Catholic, I understand. Yes. yes. And, uh, and so they had their thing on the side. And, and, uh, you know, she became more open about it after he passed away, of course, and didn't want to hurt anyone while certain parties were still living. But, uh, but, uh, you know, when, when people go back and look at those films, you can tell that there's a rapport there that it goes beyond just, you know, knowing your lines and not bumping into the furniture, which is <laughs> the advice that Spencer Tracy would give to any of his sort of up and coming co-stars. Right, right. Um, you know, just the, the pats on the bum and, and all kinds of business, uh, that take place in those films. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't just feel like stage direction no. it really does feel like it comes from something a lot deeper yeah there were some there were so there were so great films and I, it's funny to think that they sort of survived uh generational changes uh you know as i mentioned audrey hepburn 
carried that torch for a while and sure, then yeah. and, and uh marilyn monroe made a bunch of romantic comedies uh certainly some like it hot is a romantic comedy uh you know and it's the 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 genre sort of went fallow in the 70s i think there were i guess there were a few shampoo might be considered one but it doesn't feel quite like the era where romantic comedies were of as much interest uh as as they had been in the past and i think they sort of regained interest in the eighties and then into the nineties again. Um, I mean, I certainly, I mean, as, as, as I became a a serious film lover, I I remember watching some of these classics, but also, yeah, in the eighties, certainly you mentioned earlier a broadcast news, which has so much going on in it in terms of being a satire of, 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 uh, well, what its title is broadcast news journalism. And it's so clever about that. And it's so biting, uh, at the same time, in the center of it, it's a love triangle between two guys, uh, two guys and a, and a woman, and they, it's a workplace comedy. Uh, it's it's I've actually watched that not too long ago, and it still holds up. Aside from the shoulder pla- pads and the bad '80s hair, <laughs> like the fashions, the, all of the other elements totally still work. It's that's that's a that's kind of a classic. Yeah, I I, I think that uh, at at some point I, th- I think that the rom- the romantic comedy sort of became put down to the realm of maybe teenagers I, you know maybe like the, the the john hughes era sure kind of like those are the romantic comedies that are getting made pretty in pink and 60 yeah, candles yeah, and that yeah, kind of thing that makes sense and um you know where there weren't as many i mean there's only so many settings you can put uh teenagers in is it a school or summer vacation or camp, right whatever um and uh i think that maybe maybe the you know, as good as those films were, that maybe the genre didn't quite recover. You know, and it's so then the next batch of films that follows are the, the kind of McConaughey Hudson type movies where they're just basically teenagers in adult clothing kind of thing. Like they, they're not really acting like adults in, the, in fairly contrived situations. Um, which is why I'm hopeful that some of these newer indie films that 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 have less conventional settings and, and setups, uh, and uh, arrangements, uh, can, can take place. I, I'm wondering when, when, you know, we'll see a romantic comedy that actually addresses things like bisexuality or, you know, or, 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 or gender issues. I feel like there's, there's a gold mine of, of, of story ideas waiting to happen there that hasn't quite been tapped into. No, I think, I think you're right. And I think, uh, well, if I, maybe one of the, the, my favorite same sex romantic comedies is Kissing Jessica Stein from 2001, oh, okay. uh, based on a play written by Heather Jurgensen and Jennifer Westfeld, who uh, who star in the movie version as well. Uh, and basically, it's about uh, two women who decide to try same-sex relationships because dating the opposite dating men has just not worked out for them uh and uh, and so so jessica stein played by westfeld she puts uh, an ad a personal ad in the paper and uh and uh helen cooper played by jurgensen answers it and and it's it will ends up to this very painful difficult uh relationship but very funny as well uh, largely because westfeld's character the jessica stein of the title she comes from a uh, a New York Jewish family, and she can't bear to l- tell them that she is now dating a woman uh, because that just isn't something that they're ready for. And the first, I would say the first two thirds of the movie is how she manages not only to get over her own uh, repressive uh 
issues around sex and around being in a in a same-sex relationship, but also how she dances around her family obligations. Uh, and there is a wonderful scene in the film with uh, with her and Tova Felcha, who plays her mom, Judy, when they're sitting on a porch, and it gets me every time when her mom lets her know that she knows <laughs> that she's that her daughter is dating another woman. And it is a wonderful scene. It's one of those moments where you're just like, oh, this feels so true. You know, I wasn't expecting it. Uh, and uh, it is a it's a great romantic comedy. It's a it's I think it's I think it'll pre uh, will will if you haven't seen it, I think anyone who likes the form will love this. Uh, interestingly, a little sort of Side note, uh, Jennifer Westfeld uh, has been largely known, although she's done a lot of other great films since, uh, has been known as the partner of John Hamm, uh, who has a small role in the film as well. I don't think they're together now, but they, they anyway, they were, and they they got together, and yeah, he, he's in the film, uh, a much younger <laughs> John Hamm 15 years ago. But uh, yeah, that's Kissing Jessica Stein, definitely. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, and I am host of The Food Podcast. Now, this is not a cooking podcast. We'll talk about the history of food, we'll meet the players in the food world, and we'll explore the ingredients that fill our lives with flavor. Check us out on iTunes and Stitcher. We'd love to hang out with you. Well, we're kind of coming full circle from Bridget Jones' baby and the Bridget Jones franchise because one of the people that had a hand in the earlier films, of course, is a favorite uh, writer and filmmaker of yours. And I've certainly enjoyed uh, a lot of his work on TV and on the big screen over the years. And uh, certainly a deft hand at uh, portraying adult relationships in comedic light. And we're talking about Richard Curtis. Yeah, I, I guess I encountered his work first with Blackadder. Well, I was in, I was a teenager when I first saw Blackadder. He was one of the writers along with Ben Elton and boy, were they funny. And, uh, and then he went on into feature films, writing them first before he eventually became a director. Uh, and one of his very first ones that he wrote was the tall guy from 1989. Uh, this stars, it's Jeff Goldblum, who made a bunch of films in the late 80s in the UK, many of which have not been very well seen, but they're worth seeking out. Mm. I think he was might have been splitting up from Gina Davis at the time, <laughs> not to get into all of the real life romantic no. issues here of these people. But at any rate, he, he went to the UK. And uh, so he was in this film where he... Um, where where he basically played an American actor looking to get into theater in London, and he has terrible allergies, so he goes to see an allergist, and uh, and he um, uh, and he meets uh, Emma Thompson, and they immediately fall in love, uh, as you would, because Emma Thompson is wonderful. Yes, and. Uh, and I, in some ways, I think that Thompson is the true heir to Catherine Hepburn. She has such great timing and that ferocious intelligence. Um, but uh, anyway, the, it's it's uh, it's also and then he lands this uh, incredible gig as the elephant in the Elephant Man musical, uh, <laughs> including the classic tune "I'm Packing My Trunk." trunk. Yeah. Yes, and uh, it's it's. It's a little broader than some of Richard Curtis's later films, like Four Weddings and a Funeral or or um, or Notting Hill. It's much more 
reliant on on Goldblum's physical slapstick. Uh, also, it uh, yeah, it uh, it stars Blackadder's uh, uh, and Mr. Bean. There, um, Rowan Atkinson is also in it as a, as a really miserable, miserable dude. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's it's quite fun, and and it, it also contains one of the most athletic and hilarious sex scenes in cinema history. So I recommend it for that as well. I remember it well. I, I yeah, there's I'm packing my trunk. Isn't there like a song like there'll be some big feet stomping around heaven tonight yes. or something? Yeah, something big like, ears, big ears in heaven. That's it. That's it. I, did, <laughs> I haven't seen this film in, in well over a decade and, and the stuff stays in my head. So that tells you how good it is. If, if, if the film is going to be that memorable. Um, yeah. Wonderful film. I, I'm thinking that Mel Smith's direction may have uh, upped the, the slapsticky nature of it Could have more been. so yeah. that, I mean, that's kind of his background. I mean, he's the, the star of morons from outer space. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously part of that, uh, not the nine o'clock news group that include, well, Curtis was a writer for it and also include Rowan Atkinson mm-hmm. and, uh, Griff Reese Jones yep. and, uh, Pamela Stevenson, who's that's also right. married to Billy Connolly. Um, and still is, they've been married for decades, but, um, uh, so that's kind of, that's sort of the, I guess the comic strip, series and then not the nine o'clock news are kind of like the breeding ground for this amazing pool of talent you know yeah. other writers as well chris langham i think um who was this i don't know if you remember him he showed up on the muppet show as this kind of the guest star that nobody had heard of <laughs> okay and the story is apparently they had uh they had one whatever whoever was supposed to star that week had wasn't able to make it to London for the taping. So they just dusted off a bunch of old sketches and stuck one of their writers Hilarious. in front of the camera. And, and he did a bunch of his gags and, and, you know, did some, did a bit of sort of stand up with a puppety theme and, and some sketches that had been rejected from other shows. Uh, and it's actually one of my favorite episodes of the Muppet show. But, um, but so he was involved with, uh, with uh, not the nine o'clock news and, and, and the tall guy was kind of like the start of something really neat happening in uh, British film comedy at that time. And, uh, and Goldblum, I think, had, he'd had some cachet from appearing in The Fly, so yeah, he had sure. he had the luxury of being able to pick his projects and and actually get some starring roles, which is not, you know, something. It was a very brief, glorious uh, Goldblum golden age, but uh, you know, it was fun while it lasted. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, he was in Jurassic Park shortly after that, and then and then he did so yeah these blockbusters Independence Day. But uh, but you're right, he didn't. He wasn't always the man with a name above the title, and uh, it's great to see him in something like this, especially something so funny. Uh, he's so good in it. But but it really did kick off uh, a series of successful films that kind of showed Hollywood up at you know how badly they had fallen behind in this particular type of movie. That's uh, true. You know, and I, I think I think part of it is because the seventies was such a doer kind of heavy decade. Um, I mean, obviously, some great films came out of it. But uh, light, brisk romantic comedy was not one of the, the yeah. genres. Well, that, that's, genres that's what that I was before. Yeah, um, sure. I think after the decade of the '60s and the Doris Day kind of comedies, um, that was not something that anyone really wanted to to venture into too much. I, th- I think of like Francis Ford Coppola's uh, romantic comedy "You're a Big Boy Now," which is one of his earliest films. Wow, I've is, never seen that. I have. It is not aged well, but okay. it has a, it has this moment. It's got music by the Loving Spoonful. You know, to, you know who also did the music for "What's Up, Tiger Lily." Okay. Um, and it's you know he it's about this kind of lonely mama's boy who falls in love with a librarian, and uh, it has all these great scenes shot inside of the 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 major New York library, and it's it has its charms, but it's not it has not aged well at all. Um, it's just interesting to watch as as a rare <laughs> romantic comedy right, from sure. Francis Ford Coppola, <laughs> um, who would uh, you know he later 
take another stab at it with those. Uh, one from the heart, his musical yes. romance, which uh, less of a comedy, yeah, not not so not so comedic and, yeah. and not so successful either. I have a soft spot for it because it's so grandiose, but it's not that great movie. Mm. Um, but but yeah, but that was not a, a format that anybody really wanted to go near, and and so. You know the British kind of took up the 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 torch in the in the mid to late eighties and uh, really came out on top, uh, mostly through Curtis. I think I think a lot there were a lot of imitators of him as well. You yes, know, and mostly you know latching onto Hugh Grant and in a, to, in a, any attempt to kind of replicate the the success of uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral, which yeah. is the breakout film. Yeah, no, that was and I mean that is probably my all time favorite romantic comedy, and I'm sure most people listening to this will remember it. But uh, there were others in the '90s uh, that I really enjoyed, uh, where I still felt felt like there was some, uh, you know. And the one thing about uh, about romantic comedies is it allows for some magic realism, like you can because romance can be so magical. You know, in in love can be so romantic, magical. The the form in film, I think, uh, can provide some some real uh, creativity in that. And uh, a couple of films from the early '90s, I wanted to recommend that people may not remember, or if they do, they may not remember well. There was The Butcher's Wife from 1991, directed by Terry Hughes, written by Ezra Litwack and Marjorie Schwartz. This is a movie. Uh, where uh, the basic story to me, to me more. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, and it's a story of a uh, New York butcher, Leo played by George Zunza, who meets this North Carolina and clairvoyant played by Demi Moore names, actual character's name is Marina. And he, she believes this guy is her true love. So they get married and they go back to Manhattan to this very clearly sort of fake Manhattan, this sort of stage set where this wonderful community of people, she winds up starting to help with her, her ability to see the future, her psychic abilities. Now, uh, including characters like played by Francis McDormand, uh, Max Perlick, uh, Mary Steenburgen, and a, a couple of local ladies who are hilarious, played by Miriam Margulies and oh. Helen Hanf. <laughs> uh, and uh, and the, the guy who is their local uh, therapist is played by the very underrated Jeff Daniels, and he is amazing in the, as the wonderfully named Dr. Alex Tremor. Uh, now the problem with the film is more she's gorgeous and she has the star power to carry a movie like this but she's missing a lot of whimsy that this kind of part calls for and her accent her North Carolina accent is all (laughs) over the place but the rest of the cast is so funny and the writing sparkles so this is one that if people have bad memories of it or none at all it's worth seeking out The Butcher's Wife I also wanted to mention in, in in the magic realist stakes L.A. Story, directed by Mick Jackson and written by Steve Martin. Uh, Martin plays Harris K. Telemacher, a Los Angeles weatherman who lives in a magic realist Los Angeles, which the whole movie is basically a love letter to the town. L.A. has never looked this good as it does in this film. Uh, And the, the, the crux of the story is Harris is dating... Trudy, played by Marilu Henner, but he's miserable and so is she. Then he meets a British journalist who's visiting Los Angeles, Victoria Tennant, who who uh, I guess Martin was actually romantically yes, involved with a couple for a time. For a while. Yeah, uh, and she's there to work on a story and perhaps reconnect with her ex, who's living in L.A., played by Rich D. Grant. And then Harris, uh, the Martin character, meets a much younger woman who likes to spin on the beach, a never better Sarah Jessica Parker. Uh, this is a movie I never get tired of. Every time I go back to it, even as as some of the styles age, even as some of the jokes about LA feel a little dated, even and I, but it has excellent use of Enya 
It's like Enya was in a lot of romantic comedies that year, including Green Card, by the way, which is another great one That's by right, Peter yes. Weir. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just a lovely, lovely film. And, and it has enough belief in its central magic conception of the world that it includes sentient traffic signs. That's right. Yes, I remember that. And Sarah Jessica Parker on rollerblades. That's and, right. <laughs> yes, and it's it's a very very funny movie. Um, and uh, I don't know if I, I I don't know how much time we have left, but I want to give a couple of more shout outs to films that uh, that also have a bit of magic in them. Uh, Hear my song, it, which uh, is a hard movie to find these days. Oh, Ned Beatty is yeah, the Ned op- Beatty, yeah, Writ- written and directed by Peter Chesham. It's loosely based on the true story of Irish tenor Joseph Locke, who left the UK as a tax exile. He was a big star in the 50s uh, and returned to Ireland and basically vanished. Uh, and this is this takes place years later when a nightclub owner, played by Adrian Dunbar, who's trying to keep his nightclub afloat in the UK, he wants to impress his girlfriend, the delightful Tara Fitzgerald. Uh, now, the girlfriend's mother had a fling with Locke, played by Ned Beatty, as you mentioned, back in the old days, so Dunbar's character figures he can, if he can find a way to bring Locke back for one show, not only will he save his club, but he also impress his girlfriend and maybe reconnect his girlfriend's mother with this, this man who he, she's always had this, this long, uh, unrequited love for. And uh, it's a wonderfully structured film. The whole setup is really great, the beginning, sort of a drama to start with. But then Mickey, uh, the Adrian Dunbar character, goes to Ireland and has this wonderful adventure there with an old <laughs> friend of his, played by James Nesbitt. And then the final act, which is the triumphant return of Joseph Locke, or is it? Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, it's got great twists, is great music. I don't didn't know anything about Locke's music at all. And of course, it's wonderful, like 50s, 60s tenor uh, songs. And uh, yeah, for years, it was only available on VHS. Apparently, now you can get it on DVD. Of course, it's an overpriced DVD if you can find it anywhere. Yes. But, uh, but it is a gem. Hear my song. Yeah, definitely. Um. Yeah, I, I saw that when it came out. I have very fond memories of it. I haven't seen it since. Of course, you mentioned Tara Fitzgerald, who's a wonderful actor, and and uh, I, kind of, I don't know what she's... She's probably been on Game of Thrones, because everybody's she been on Game been of Thrones. She has been on Game oh, of Thrones, Oh, she has actually. been. See, there you go. <laughs> there um, you go. Yeah, uh, she she played uh, uh, the, the, the wife of... Um, Oh, I'm going to forget all these characters. Well, I'm not going to know because I've never watched Game of Thrones. <laughs> but uh, I, I thought of uh, Sirens. Right, with, yes, uh, of course. She was in Hugh that. Hugh Grant, of course. Yes. Uh, the Australian comedy about a where they encounter a, a, an artist who lives a fairly uh, uh, bohemian lifestyle with his models mm. and... and uh, and you know she has to kind of step up to the plate to keep her own romance uh, alive. Ah, Stannis Baratheon. Thank you. Oh, I was going to drive me crazy. Stannis Baratheon. <laughs> Sorry, Game of Thrones. Okay, go back. Sorry to interrupt. Phew. Please go go back. <laughs> well, aside aside from uh, aside from going to see a matinee of Bridget Jones' Baby by myself, which is very you know with two other women in the audience, probably giving you the stink eye, and. Um, and uh, also watching Notting Hill finally for the first time, in which I quite enjoyed. You did. Um, I yeah. didn't. I didn't realize you hadn't seen it before. It's on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, I watched it. I also wanted a friend of mine has a song in the film, but it turns out his song is only in the UK cut. Oh, they they dubbed in some other song by some American act in the American version. So oh, too bad. I'd have to get the UK DVD to actually hear his song play, like over the end credits or whatever. But. Um, uh, and that would be Steve Poltz. It's on, it's on the soundtrack CD, so he does get those royalties. Okay, well that's good. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I didn't. It, it, as it turns out, it was only in the UK edition of the film, which is weird. Um, but um, 
I found a film. Uh, I actually found this. D, it's a Paramount film, Vista Vision, early '60s. I found it in a bargain bin. It's called A New Kind of Love, uh, named after an old Maurice Chevalier song, and it is set in Paris. Although it's a very Hollywood Paris, I think. I don't even know if the stars ever made it across the Atlantic. I think there's a lot of back projection and, and movie sets, but um, basically we got Paul Newman at his peak handsomeness and uh, his real life uh, wife, uh, Joanne Woodward as um, kind of a sparring couple in Paris. She is a, she's kind of a buyer for a New York department store. Who's basically gone over to check out the new Paris fashions and imitate them and sell them at like a third of the price at this New York, department store so and she's kind of a tomboy she's got messy hair and wears these goofy sunglasses and and dresses in like sloppy uh trench coats and and cloth caps and stuff and is frequently mistaken for a boy over the course (laughs) of the film and of course i you know any story about a tomboy i'm an instant sucker for um so she is delightful right from the get-go she's very unconventional she has no interest in romance or anything like that and uh, Paul Newman is kind of a disgraced uh, newspaper columnist who's kind of in Paris on his last chance after having an affair with his boss's wife by mistake. Go figure. Um, he's been sent to the Paris bureau to come up with something interesting to write about. And of course, uh, they have a he gets drunk on the plane, and they have their meet cute where he's very drunk and pouring booze into her meal and all this kind of stuff. And it's you know, but it, it's there, there's a bit of contrivance at the end because. It, because my big problem with a lot of these uh, romantic comedies is that it's all about that race to the altar. And, uh, and, and the film gets a little caught up in that at the end when it should be just about becoming a couple and having a relationship. Um, but, uh, but getting there is, is the fun part because they just have that wonderful chemistry, um, that, you know, just extended into the real life. I mean, they were married for, for so many decades and, uh, and, uh, we're kind of like the, the successful, they were the, like the, the, the icon, the icons for the successful Hollywood marriage, you know, the, that is the, the exception rather than the rule, I guess. And, and, uh, but they, you know, to see them in this comedy and kind of flashing looks at each other and having that verbal sparring and everything, it, it's really quite wonderful. And it's in Technicolor and, and, uh, Joanne Woodward, you know, not necessarily known for comedy, mostly more for serious dramas and things like that, uh, really gets to go all out here with her character and, and, and playing like an independent woman. And it, it, like I say, the, the matrimonial stakes kind of dampen that a little bit towards the end as they often do in these comedies. But, uh, thankfully that's sort of just the end of the film. But, uh, but I guess that is maybe the, the issue I often have with these films that they do kind of put a unrealistic light on relationships and, and what two people are supposed to do when they get together and all that sort of thing. And, and, uh, I, I wonder like how many people base <laughs> their success in relationships on what they've seen in romantic comedy. Hopefully not too much. Because, hopefully not too much, but yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's what we wish was true. If not actually true. Yeah. Yeah. But and it's, uh, yeah, they, they so rarely resemble anything that happens in real life. And, and maybe that's one of the reasons why they kind of go in and out of, of, of favor because, yeah. because of, uh, you know, they have to create a new set of, uh, circumstances to make us believe what's happening on the screen. And, and, um, like, you know, and coming back to Bridget Jones's baby, it's kind of hard to imagine that some, that a woman would not get the DNA test, you know, yeah. right away yeah. to figure it, you know, rather than have these two guys kind of doing this juggling act. It's like, well, what, who would put themselves through that? Yeah. So, no, I agree. 
I agree. And I think, you know, just to before we have to finish off here, uh, you mentioned earlier that you think the future of, of the genre is probably in independent films because they have more, tend to ha- take more risks in terms of exactly, storytelling. Yeah. I also, I would totally second that, but I also think that women should be telling these stories. And I think that more women should be directing and writing romantic comedies. And that's one of the great things about Bridget Jones. It was the first one and the third one were directed by women. And, uh, and Helen Fielding, of course, wrote the original story. Uh, before we finish up, I just want to recommend quickly three films that sure. have women, uh, independent romantic comedies that are recent, that have women in key, key roles. Love is All You Need from 2012, directed by Suzanne Beer. Uh, she is, of course, an Academy Award winning uh, director from Denmark. This is a comedy about a uh, Copenhagen hairdresser who is battling with cancer and her uh, who goes to uh, her kid's wedding in Italy and connects with Pierce Brosnan. So it is a Danish comedy, romantic <laughs> comedy, but there's also a lot of English in it. And Pierce Brosnan doesn't speak any Danish. So so a lot of it is in English. And it is a delight because it actually deals with real life stuff while also managing the, the romantic co- comedy and the beautiful scenery. Um, and speaking of, and if you like Danish romantic comedies, I can also recommend, incidentally, um, Italian for Beginners, which was another delightful oh, film yeah, from, from the Danes. Um, but uh, another one of from recent days, Sleeping with Other People, which was written and directed by Leslie Headland, which is uh, a almost a sex comedy, another genre that we don't see much of anymore, uh, with Jason Sudeikis and Alison Brie as a couple who hooked up in college and then much later meet again and uh, and become good friends while they're trying to deal with, they decide that they aren't going to sleep together again and instead just advise each other on their romantic issues. Uh, and it's it's really delightful. And also uh, Adam Scott, Amanda Peet are in it. And they're, again, the supporting cast being very strong helps helps it work out. Um, and finally, a movie I only saw a couple months ago that was that's on Netflix called Man Up. Again, a British film, uh, and it was written by Tess Morris, and it is, uh, it's a, a delightful story, very Richard Curtis-esque, uh, Lake Bell, and, um, uh, and who else is in this? <laughs> Lake <laughs> Bell and Simon Pegg are oh, a yes. couple who are, are meeting, and, and they meet under where she pretends to be someone else, and they meet in a, in a train station in London, and for about the first half of the film, she's pretending to be the blind date, Simon Pegg's blind date, and uh, and then she has to come clean about the fact she's not the person he thinks she is, uh, and a lot of, of drama comes out, uh, squeezed out of that <laughs> in this wonderful romantic comedy, which is also a great London movie. Uh, so, so, yeah. Uh, they are still being made, though a little bit outside the the norm of Hollywood. And uh, and I, as I say, independent and women uh, should be that's that's the way this this is totally going to survive. Well, that wraps up our look at the romantic comedy. Hopefully, there's uh, some life left in in that genre. Uh, you know, Valentine's Day is right around the corner. <laughs> and uh, Gary Marshall is sadly not. So we'll see, we'll, we'll see who nice steps one. up to the plate for that. Nice one, Stephen. Um, my name is Stephen Cook. I'm Karsten Knox. And you can find us on Facebook. We're on Twitter, at LendsMeYourEars. Uh, you can also uh, send us a note at LendsMeYourEarsPodcast at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter, at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And I'm at Karsten Knox, C-A-R-S-T-E-N-K-N-O-X. 
And if you enjoyed the show and want to help support it, of course, we have a Patreon that you can contribute a few uh, pennies to every now and again. And of course, as always, thanks to the folks here at CKDU-FM 88.1 and the Village Soundcast Network. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Discover more great shows on the Village Soundcast Network by going to villagesoundcast.com. We can also be found on Twitter at VSoundcast and on Facebook by searching the Village Soundcast Network. Send feedback to lendsmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.